everyone else. Revelation chapter number 20 in your Bibles this morning. We're continuing our series, work for, My Work for God, His Coming. My Work for God, His Coming. And we're going to look at a topic today that's very heavy. If you are here today and have yet to give your heart and life to Christ, I hope today to be able to compel you to do that. Uh, the book of Jude, uh, the Bible says some folks are saved through compassion. And if some have compassion, verse 22 says, making, make, make, making a difference. And then verse 23 says others are saved uh, by pulling them out of the fire. Today's sermon is going to be one of those where I'm going to try to pull you out of the fire. I'm going to wave reality in your face of what it's going to look like if you die without, or if you live without Christ, and uh, you die without Christ, and you reject Christ. And I hope today that everyone here who's not saved, who's not given their heart to Christ, has not been salvaged through the cross, will, will give their heart to the Lord today. Revelation 20, we're going to begin in verse 11 and read down through 15. Let's stand together if we can for the reading of God's Word. Revelation chapter 20, verse 11 through verse number 15, and we're going to read responsibly. We'll begin together, together in verse 11, and then we'll read every other verse together down through the end of the chapter here, verse 15. Beginning in verse 11, everybody, here we go. And I saw a great white throne, and him that sat on it, from whom face the... And there was found no place for them. And I saw the dead, small and great, stand before God, and the books were opened... And another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the, and the dead were judged out of those things which were written in the books according to their works. And the sea gave up the dead which were in it. And death and hell delivered up the dead which were in them. And they were judged, every man, according to their works. And death and hell were cast into the lake of fire. This is the second death. And whosoever was not found written in the book of life was cast into the lake of fire. We've been looking at the second coming of Christ uh, throughout this, uh, the last few weeks. And we've talked about, let's see here, the rapture of the church. We've looked at the reward for the Christian. That was last week's message. This week we're going to look at the reality for the Christless. What will it look like if you die without Christ? What will it look like if you choose to go into the tribulation time without Christ, and then still continue to reject Him. We're going to look at that in great detail today. And I hope today, again, I beg of you today, if you've not yet given your heart to Christ, I hope that the sermon today will be a reality check of things that are to come. I'm not a fear-mongering preacher. That's not my style. But God's Word is accurate. And the events we're going to look at today will come to pass. And they're not meant to make you scared. They're meant to help you understand Give your heart to Jesus before it's eternally too late. Let's pray. Lord, help us this morning as we look at your word. Help us to be challenged by it. Lord, for those of us in here that are saved, that's the majority of us, may this sermon uh, entice us to be more soul conscious. Lord, you know this morning as I looked over my notes, staring out my window in my living room, seeing cars go up and down the interstate and down the road. Lord, the thought hit me of how many of those people are Without Christ, how many of those people will have to endure the things covered in these uh, chapters? And how many of these people will spend an eternity in hell? And Lord, may all of us that are saved begin to think along these lines. May we be more soul conscious. May we be more eternally minded. And Lord, for the one here today that has not given their heart to you, may the sermon be a reality check for them. And may they 
Go ahead and choose to trust Christ for salvation today. We ask all this in Jesus' most precious and holy name. And all God's people said, Amen. Amen. You may be seated. Well, we know about Jesus' first coming. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John record the first coming of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. He was born through the womb of a a woman named Mary, a virgin womb. And uh, he lived a perfect life, and he died. The first time Jesus came, he came as a prophet. The second time Jesus comes, he will be coming as a king. The first time he died, the second time he will rule and reign. To each one of us who put uh, our faith and trust in Christ alone for salvation, the coming second coming of Jesus is an exciting event. The Bible says that we will rule and reign as priests and kings next to Jesus uh, in that thousand year uh, reign. For those who reject Christ and choose sin over the Savior of humanity, this will be a very harsh reality. What, uh, so, in order to help us understand why God will punish sin so severely, we must first answer a vital question. And so, I've got a lot of material for you today. Uh, your outline on the back of the bulletin only has a handful of blanks compared to normal. But I've got a lot of material going up on the screen. If you have an extra sheet of paper and can take notes this morning, or uh, maybe you want to pull out a notes app on your phone and jot some of these things down, or even take a picture of the screen as it goes along, that would be fine. But let me just encourage you today to pay close attention as I talk Talk about a very vital question that helps us understand how God could be so wrathful against sin. Here's the question. Why does God hate sin? Why does God hate sin? I asked that question this week as I began to put this message together. And I have to be really honest. At first, I had a hard time answering the question. I had a hard time answering the question, why does God hate sin? And uh, I, um, I began to do a little bit of a Bible study. And I began to do a little bit of a research, and I came to a very solid conclusion as to why God hates sin. The answer to this question helps us understand why hell is so hot and hell is so horrible. If you understand why God hates sin, the, re- the, the reality and uh, the, uh, the, the plausibility of hell begins to really open up to you here. Okay, so let me give you a handful of reasons as to why God hates sin. Number one, because He is holy. Because He is holy. Psalm chapter 5 and verse 4 says, For thou art not a God that hath pleasure in wickedness, neither shall evil dwell with thee. God is holy. There is no wickedness. There is no evil in Him. God has never committed a single sin. God cannot sin. That's the only thing God cannot do is sin. God cannot and will not sin because He is holy. He epitomizes righteousness. He is righteousness. Uh, He can be nothing but righteous. And because He is God, and because He's holy, and because He's light, and because He's perfect, the opposite of Him is evil, and God hates sin. Now, sin is described as putrefying sores in Isaiah chapter 1 and verse number 6, as a scarlet stain in Isaiah chapter 1 and verse 18. Sin is described as a heavy burden in Psalm 38 and verse number 4. It is described as defiling filth in Titus chapter 1 in verse 15. It is described as a binding debt in Matthew chapter 6 verse 12 through 15. And sin is described as darkness in 1 John chapter 1 and verse 6. So uh, we see here, this is God's view of sin. He sees it as uh, just this horrid, wretched 
thing. Um, uh, one vivid example given there on the screen of a defiling filth or, or a putrefying sore is Isaiah stood in the presence of God in a vision in Isaiah 6. And Isaiah would say, I am a man of unclean lips and I dwell amongst the people of unclean lips. Later in his uh, book that he wrote, the book of Isaiah, he would say this. Listen carefully. He would say, our righteousnesses are as filthy rags in the sight of God. He said even those things that we look at and would call righteous, God is putrefied by. He pushes away from because God's level of holiness and our best efforts at holiness fall way, way, way short of where He is. Now listen carefully. A, 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 a filthy rag, the Hebrew word there for filthy rag, is a word that describes a rag that a leper would wipe, wipe, wrap around his pussy sorts. He would take that off when it was too gross to wear, he would rinse it out, he would hang it over a tree and let it dry, he would use it again, he would rinse it out, he would hang it over a tree and dry, eventually it would become so unsanitary, it could not be used anymore, and he says our righteousnesses are like that filthy rag. Now, if that's what our righteousnesses are like, how does God view our evil? He is holy. He hates sin. Because it defiles It defiles our hearts. Number two, the second reason why God hates sin, because it separates us from Him. It separates us us from Him. Now, God made Adam and Eve, put them in the Garden of Eden for one purpose, to fellowship with them, to walk with them, to commune with them, to have unity with them, uh, to enjoy a sense of community with them. And what did they do? They went and they chose against God, and they caused a separation of their soul from God. The Bible says, the soul, the soul that sinneth, it shall die. And you know what happened is the soul of man died when Adam and Eve ate the fruit. That part of us that communes and connects with God. Many people go through life broken and can't figure out uh, why they just can't seem to find happiness. It constantly eludes them and uh, they're sad and they're hurting or or maybe they're just distracted with entertainment and relationships and a good time and making money, uh, but they never can seem when it's quiet and they're all by themselves in their car or laying in bed at night trying to fall asleep. There's an empty in their soul and that's because your soul upon sin is dead and has no relationship with God Isaiah chapter 59 verse 2 Isaiah worded it this way he says but your iniquities have separated between you and your God and your sins have hidden his face from you that he will not hear let me give you a few more reasons why God hates sin number three notice because it deceives and distracts the saved from pursuing a holy life I've been saved for 34 years. And I've got to tell you this morning, if I'm just being honest with you, I've got to tell you, I'm nowhere near the Christian I ought to be. I'm just not. I've been saved long enough where I should be a far better Christian than I am. I still struggle with sin that I shouldn't struggle with. And I still struggle with inconsistency like I shouldn't struggle with. And if you followed me around for a week, you'd go, man, he's not a very good pastor. I'm just telling you. You say, you're being too hard on yourself. Oh, no, I'm not. No, I'm not. I struggle. I struggle with sin. I struggle with wrong. And you know why? Because sin distracts me from being the holy, living a holy life like I ought to before the Lord. God hates our sin because it keeps us from that community with Him even when we're saved. Number four, why does God hate sin? Because it blinds us to the truth. It blinds us to the truth. I think of Samson. Samson had a problem with sexual lust. And uh, he had a problem with not wanting to marry Israeli women. 
He was an Israeli, and he was ordered to be uh, married within his own people group there. And, and he didn't want to marry the, those who believed like him, or were Jews that believed like him. He wanted to marry some Gentile. And so it, it, marrying a Gentile wasn't necessarily a sin. It was marrying a woman who worshipped a pagan god. And so he went, and he found himself a pagan girl, and he married her, and then uh, left her. And then he found another uh, pagan girl and started to ha- sleep with her and, and have intimate relations with her. And she began to, she was getting paid uh, by the uh, uh, by the uh, other uh, by the Philistines, there you go. By the Philistines, in order to give him up, and so uh, Samson had unbelievable strength. Many of you here know the story. Uh, one time, he put the walls, uh, the gates of his city, on his back, and he carried them up a mountain. Another time, he took the jawbone of a donkey and he killed a thousand people just with that. He had incredible strength. Uh, he could not be bound by rope. Uh, he had a divine strength. And um, God had given him his strength through his hair. He had long flowing hair. And uh, he, uh, he's laying there in the lap, has his head in the lap of this mistress of his. And she says, tell me your strength. And he lies to her. And she does what he says. And the Philistines come in. And lo and behold, his strength is still there. And you'd think at that point he told her what would make him weak. She did it to him. And yet he stayed with her. And he did it again, and again, and again. Why? Because he's blinded to the truth because of his sin. And lo and behold, lo and behold, he finally gives in and says, it's my hair. And while he sleeps with his head in her lap, she shaves his head. And the Philistines come in and they capture him. They take him into captivity. And what did they do? They plucked his eyeballs out of his skull. What did sin literally do? Sin blinded him to the truth. He could no longer see. I want to say to each one of you here this morning, you may be living a life and you may be flirting with and enamored with sin in a sinful culture. Keep playing with sin, you're going to get burned. Keep playing with sin, you're going to have heartache in relationships. Keep playing with sin, uh, you're going to sit there and have emotional disorders. Keep playing with sin, you're going to have all kinds of hurt, struggle, and pain in your life because sin brings blindness to the truth. That's why God hates sin, because it damages His creation. Why does God hate sin? Number five, because it enslaves us and will destroy us. Number six, because it cheapens our love for Him. It cheapens our love for him. I'm going to give you five again. Those of you writing it down, it was up there too fast. In fact, go back and put number five up there just for a moment, and then uh, you can skip ahead number six, Brother Joe. It, um, it, it enslaves us and will destroy us, and then it cheapens our love for him. Listen to 1 John chapter 2 and verse 15. Listen closely. Love not the world, neither the things that are in the world. If any man love the world... The love of the Father is not in him. You see, you have to make a choice. Either you're going to love God or you're going to love the world, but you can't love them both. It's one or the other. 16 of 1 John 2 continues. It says, For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life, it goes on and says, is not of the Father, but is of the world. God's hatred of sin runs so deep that in His perfect justice, He has promised to punish sin with hellfire. That's how much He hates sin. He's going to put sin in hellfire. Now, watch this. God does not want to punish humanity. He wants to punish sin. Let me say that again. 
God does not want to punish humanity. He wants to punish sin. So, God made a way to salvage humanity from their sin. What, how did He do that? He sent Jesus Christ, who hung on the cross and died and became our sin so that our crimes against a holy God could be pardoned and we could escape hellfire and go to heaven. God wants to send sin to hell. He wants to redeem sinners from their sin and take them to heaven. So if you die without uh, Christ, uh, you go to hell. If you die with Christ, you go to heaven. Why? Because Christ separates us from our sin. If you die without Christ, then you go to hell with your sin. If you die with Christ, you go to heaven without your sin. Jesus was the answer to be able to divide you from your sin and salvage you with eternity. Let me repeat that. God loves you, but hates your sin. He loves you. What a sacrifice God made to put Jesus on the cross. What a sacrifice to take your only begotten Son and let Him go through hell for all of humanity. God literally bankrupted heaven to provide you an opportunity out of hell. And for a human being to swat away the hand of God and His sacrifice on the cross? Do you know how offensive that is to a holy God? He made you. You fell into sin. He then made a way to salvage you from sin. And you go, nope, not interested. I got my own way to heaven, or I don't even believe in God. My friend, we're going to look at Revelation today. We're going to go through the whole book and look at what's coming to those who reject Christ. Why is there a hell? Hell is there to punish sin, not sinners. But when sinners die in their sin, then they go to hell. I propose that what you do with Christ will determine where you spend eternity. Those who put their faith in Christ alone will have their sins blotted out of their own book of sins and will have their name written in the Lamb's book of life. Those who reject Christ by never believing on Him alone as the way to heaven will spend an eternity under the wrathful hand of God. This should motivate those of us who know Christ to tell anyone and everyone who Jesus is and what He offers. The wrath of God is going to be poured out on those who reject Christ. We should be busy saving them even as by fire, saving even the garments that are spotted by the flesh. Let's look at three main thoughts this morning. As we consider uh, what will happen to those who reject Christ, as we consider our Lord's second coming, again, the title is the reality for the Christless. Number one, what will happen to those who reject Christ? What will they have to endure? Number one, terror during the tribulation. Terror during the tribulation. The next event on the timeline in heaven is the rapture of the church. Jesus is going to come to the clouds. He's not going to come back to the earth. It is not His second coming. He's just simply ascending to the clouds. He's going to uh, blow a trumpet. He's going to call up the saints into heaven. The church will leave this earth and just disappear from planet earth. You say that sounds like a science fiction novel. No, my friend, that is true. Uh, the Bible has a, a habit of predicting the future and being right every time. The Bible says Jesus is coming back. Those of us which are alive and remain... We'll be caught together with Him to meet the Lord in the air, and so will we ever be with the Lord. And so Jesus is coming back. He's going to rapture the church, and then He's going to open up a time of tribulation here on earth. Daniel chapter 9 uh, tells us exactly how long that period will be. It will be a seven-year 
tribulation, of great trial and trouble and sorrow for those who have rejected Christ. Take your Bibles to Revelation 6 with me and look at verse 15. This tribulation will be God pouring out His wrath on the uh, sinners on earth. You see, Jesus will come and gather those together who have believed, and they will be taken off this planet, and then God will pour out His wrath on sinners who have rejected Him. Look at verse 15 of Revelation 6. Anyone who believes that Christians will not have to endure the wrath of God, understand the entire seven-year tribulation is the wrath of God. We find that in Revelation 6. 15, the Bible says, "...and the kings of the earth, and the great men, and the rich men, and the chief captains, and the mighty men, and every bondman, and every free man, hid himself in the dens and the rocks of the mountains, and said to the mountains of the rocks, Fall on us, and hide us from the face of Him that sitteth on the throne, and from the wrath of the Lamb, for the great day of His wrath is come. And who uh, shall be able to stand?" And so there are three sets of seven uh, judgments, seven, three sets of seven tribulations that will be poured out on all of humanity. Let's look at them very quickly this morning. Letter A, notice the seven seals. The seven seals. Revelation chapter 5. They look throughout all of heaven to find someone who can open up the book. What is the book in Revelation 5? It is the title deed to earth. And John weeps because there's no one worthy to pick up the title deed of earth and open it. And then uh, uh, an angel touches John on the shoulder and says, Hey, don't weep because there is a, 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 a lion who is able to open the book. And John opens his eyes and it's a lamb that was, was slain before the foundation of the earth. It's the Lord Jesus Christ. He goes... And he picks up the title deed of earth. And then all of the thousands and tens of thousands, they rejoice and sing, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain uh, before the earth. And, and Jesus begins to un- un- unroll the scroll of the title deed of earth. And at each section of that scroll, there is a wax seal marking yet a separate chapter. And as each wax seal is broken, another judgment is poured on the earth. Look at Revelation chapter 6 and look at verse number 1. The Bible says, And I saw when the Lamb opened one of the seals, and I heard, as it were, the noise of thunder, and uh, one of the four beasts saying, Come and see. And I saw, and behold, a white horse, and he that sat on him uh, had a bow, and a crown was given unto him, and he went forth conquering and to conquer. And so, uh, let me quickly give you, these will be up on the screen, all seven will be up there at the same time. I would recommend instead of writing, you just take out your phone and take a picture, or ask me later, and I'll send it to you. Okay, number one, notice, uh, the, the seven seal judgments, number one, is the white horse, the white horse who is the Antichrist. We just read about him in Revelation 6, 1 and 2. Uh, the, the tribulation will be kicked off when a treaty is signed with Israel. Israel will sign a treaty with the, the state of Palestine that will come to a truce. There will be no more war. The Antichrist will make that happen. Number two is the red horse, and that is war breaks out amongst the nations. Number three, the black horse, famine and government seizure of food for distribution. I had uh, someone ask me just last week how um, you can uh, argue famine when food is so cheap. And the best I can answer that question is that food will become scarce, so the government will seize all of it and then will regulate the price of food. It will be government regulated, it will be socialistic, communistic food distribution in nature. Number four, notice the pale horse of death and hell. So those are the four horses of the apocalypse which uh, get referenced in all kinds of cultural uh, ways. Number five, the fifth seal is the martyrs. There will be a great slaying and killing of those who have uh, 
trusted Christ after the rapture. Number six will be a great earthquake. And number seven, there will be a great silence in heaven. So those are the seven, uh, those are the seven seal judgments. If you're living on planet earth, you're going to have to deal with the antichrist taking over. You're going to have to deal with a great war that breaks out. Many will die. You're going to have to deal with a great famine, a government seizure of food and distribution. You're going to have to deal with death and hell on some level breaking out on earth. You're going to have to deal with Christians being martyred all over the place. You're going to have to deal with a great earthquake, which will shake uh, much of the earth and cause much death and violence. And then you're going to have to deal with heaven becoming very silent toward earth. Letter B, then we move into the seven trumpets. The seven trumpets. After the seven seal judgments, we move into the seven trumpet judgments. The seven angels blow a trumpet marking the beginning of yet another set of judgments signifying the wrath of the Lamb. Many of these parallel the Egyptian plagues. These can be found in Revelations chapter 8, Revelation chapters 8 and 9. Look at Revelation 8 and verse number 1. The Bible says, And when opened the seventh seal, there was silence in heaven about the space of half an hour. And I saw the seven angels which stood before God, and to them were given seven trumpets. Look down at verse number 7. The Bible says, The first angel sounded, and there followed hail and fire mingled with blood, and they were cast upon the earth. And the third part of trees were burnt up, and all green grass, all green grass was burnt up. Here are the seven judgments, uh, or rather the seven trumpet uh, 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 tribulation. Number one, notice hail mingled with blood. Hail falling out of the sky mingled with blood. You say, is that actually going to happen? Yes, it's going to happen. Number two, notice one-third of the oceans will be turned to blood. One-third of the oceans turned to blood. Imagine you're a marine out or a mariner out in the ocean in a boat, and all of a sudden you look down and the water under you is rusty red. And you think, oh, what happened? And you scoop up, you scoop up some water and you realize this is blood, literal blood. Number three, fresh water made bitter by the star wormwood. A star will fall out of the sky, will hit the earth, and will turn, uh, uh, will turn uh, the waters, the fresh waters will be made bitter Impossible to drink. Number four, one-third of the sun, moon, and stars are darkened. By the way, much of this um, uh, uh, cry about uh, global warming and climate change, uh, again, opinion, opinion, opinion alert, okay? Make sure I mark my opinions as opinions and not Scripture. It's my opinion that much of the climate change talk is just meant to prep people for these judgments that hit the earth, all right? This is meant to help people have an excuse. It's not God judging us. We told you, treat the, treat the climate better, treat the planet better, or else uh, the earth is going to suffer. And uh, they won't view this as the judgment of God. They'll view this as climate change, the effects of climate change, in my opinion. Uh, then the Bible gives us three more judgments. These are called woe judgments, okay? Here they are. Number five, demon locusts that torture man for five months. Now, if you want a passage of Scripture that will make the hair on the back of your neck stand up and give you nightmares, read about the demon locusts that come out of hell. They torture men. And men will try to kill themselves and not be able to do so. These things have uh, multiple uh, uh, faces on them, and they sting man, and they cause them great pain. Pain uh, at a threshold very few ever understand. Think of uh, having kidney stone uh, type pain for five months nonstop with no pain medicine helping you. 
These things are going to torture man. They're going to come straight out of the abyss, straight out of hell. Uh, I don't believe this to be figurative. I, I take the book of Revelation to be very literal. Six, 200 million demon army will attack the earth. 200 million demon army. Call it the zombie apocalypse if you like. All right? I don't think it's going to be a zombie apocalypse. I think it's going to be 200 million demons coming out of hell that will attack the earth. Number seven, pronouncement of the coming of King Jesus. Pronouncement of the coming of King Jesus. And you say, well, why is that? That's a good thing. And I would say to us it's a good thing because we believe in Jesus. But to those who are enemies of Jesus, this ain't a good thing. Okay? And by the way, you say, well, this is horrible. How could God do this to people? Please understand, God is punishing those who've rejected Christ. Please understand that while all this is going on, there are 144,000 Jewish preachers going around the planet and preaching Jesus for people to still get saved. Please understand that at some point, there are two witnesses that stand on a wall in Jerusalem and they preach Jesus for the world to hear. Please understand the angels are going to write the message of Jesus in the sky and people are going to defy and deny Jesus and they're going to reject Him and God's going to say, okay, I sent Jesus to die on the cross for you and you're going to reject that, then you're going to face the wrath of the Lamb. Number, letter C, notice the seven vials. The seven vials. Another word for vial is the word bowl. Both carry with it the same concept. That God will pour out yet seven more punishments on those who have uh, rejected Christ and sold their soul to the devil in sin. And by the way, that's going to happen on this planet. It's going to happen here. And those of you that are skeptical and don't believe me, listen, uh, come check my house and come check this church. When you hear that millions of people are gone, come find, come looking for me. I won't be here. I'll be one of them gone because I put my faith in Jesus. He saved me. And when the rapture happens, I'm out of here. If you find me missing, boy, you better drop to your knees and ask Jesus to save your soul. Revelation 16, look at verse number 1. And if you're left, you can have my car. Amen? I won't need it. If you're left, take care of my dog. All right? Revelation 16. I used to joke around that uh, if the rapture took place, CJ can be the pastor. So, <laughs> Love you, CJ. All right. Now, he'll be up there with us. I'm just giving him a hard time. Look at Revelation 16. Look at verse 1. The Bible says, And I heard a great voice out of the temple saying to the seven angels, Go your ways and pour out the vials of the wrath of God upon the earth. What are the seven vile judgments? Number one, great sores on mankind. Imagine mankind being struck down with boils. All right, number two, salt water turned to blood. All the salt water now, not just a third. The rest of it's turned to blood. Number three, fresh water will be turned to blood. Number four, men will be scorched with the sun. Number five, great darkness on the earth. Number six, the Euphrates River is going to dry up and the world armies will begin to gather for war in Megiddo, in, uh, right outside Jerusalem. They will use the dried up Euphrates as a channel to get into Jerusalem. Number seven, there will be great earthquakes. Islands will disappear in the earthquake. They'll be swallowed up by the ocean. Mysterious Babylon will be, uh, mystery, rather, Mystery Babylon will be destroyed. That great city will be destroyed. I've got opinions on Babylon, but we'll save those for another time. It's going to be a time of great sorrow and suffering. It's also going to be a time of great stubbornness and of people who have a stiff neck. Let me give you a very practical example. 
Have you ever either had a child or a subordinate in some way who was so stubborn that no matter how you tried to bring them around to the truth, and even though you knew they knew the truth, in their pride, they continue to be antithetical to you. How many of you know what I'm talking about? They were opposite of you. They just didn't care, right? They dug in their heels and they weren't going to move. Sometimes when my wife is right, doesn't happen very often, amen? But sometimes when my wife is right and I'm wrong. Okay, I have to admit it. Doesn't happen often, okay? But sometimes it happens. Can I tell you my pride bows up in me and I won't admit I'm wrong, even though I am and I know I am, right? And she can be as gracious as she wants. I've just dug in my heels and I'm not going anywhere. There are going to be people on planet Earth that have dug in their heels against Jesus and they're suffering, yet they won't turn. By the way, at the three and a half year mark, uh, I believe that the, pay, well, the Bible tells us that the payment system and medical care system of the world, you won't be able to buy and sell. Uh, you won't be able to do much of anything unless you take what the Bible talks about to be the mark of the Antichrist or the mark of the beast. Be careful with that number 666. Be careful with that number. That is the number of the devil. Six is the number of man. And I don't believe, I don't, I don't uh, build doctrines on numerology, but I think it can complement doctrine. Six is the number of man, and 666 is the number of the Antichrist, the man who claims to be the Christ. He's going to sit on the throne in uh, the new temple upon its completion in Jerusalem. He's going to declare himself to be God. The Jews will realize the, uh, who he is. They will flee. The Bible calls that the abomination of desolation. They will desolate the temple over his abominable act of declaring himself to be God. They will flee into the wilderness and God will use the elements to try to protect his people and hold off the wrath of the Antichrist and the wrath of Satan against those Jews there. And they will stay in a suffering state until Jesus comes back at Megiddo uh, to fight against the Antichrist and Satan and set them free. Listen, you do not want to reject Christ. You want to go up in the rapture. You don't want to be left here on earth to suffer under the wrath of God. The wrath of God. Now, take your Bible over to Revelation chapter 20. You see, the end of the tribulation is marked. Uh, Revelation 19, Jesus comes back at the end of that seven-year tribulation, and He comes back as a warrior. In fact, if you want something that's just amazing, read about the appearance or visage of Jesus in Revelation 19. The Bible talks about uh, what his hair looks like and his eyes being a flame of fire. His, 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 he's having names written on him that only he's able to read. And, and behind Jesus on this white stallion are, is the church. The church, those who've been saved and redeemed, us that have believed, we're going to be following Jesus as an army out of heaven, riding a white horse, okay? I rode a horse last year when I went to Peru, and I hurt for about three days afterwards, okay? Uh, but you won't hurt riding this horse. You're going to come down on a horse. You're going to follow Jesus. And can I tell you that we'll be an impressive-looking army, but you and I will just spectate. The Bible says that out of the mouth of Jesus will come swords. He's going to kill the enemies, this army that gathers and uses the empty channel of the Euphrates to meet the Lord in the battle of Megiddo, rather in the valley of Megiddo, the battle of Armageddon will take place. Jesus will open his mouth and the blood, the Bible says, will flow up to the bridle of the horses. Jesus is going to win this battle like that. It's going to happen real quick. They won't stand a chance. Jesus is then going to take the devil the Antichrist and the false prophet, who are the, the uh, imitation false trinity, 
and he's going to throw them into hell. And the devil's going to be there for a thousand years. You say, well, what's going to go on during that thousand years? Jesus himself, in the Jerusalem that exists right now, Jesus is going to set up his throne, and he is going to run a theocracy on earth. Not a democracy, not where the people rule, a theocracy where God rules. He's going to be jury, judge, and executioner. He's going to be the executive branch, legislative branch, and judicial branch. He's going to make the laws. He's going to uh, interpret the laws. He's going to enforce the laws. And nobody will get away with anything. Because you can't lie to a God who knows all. There will be no war. There will be no war. In fact, they're going to take nuclear bombs and they're going to beat them into plowing shears to plow fields with. Repurpose that metal. In fact, I imagine some little boy uh, getting a, a book, a history book, and, and, and that's 500 years old and saying, Mom and Dad, what's a nuclear bomb? And Mom and Dad go, I, I have no idea. Can you imagine a day? The Bible talks about the millennial reign where the lion will lay down with the lamb, where a child will play with the snake in the ditch and not get bit. Because God has healed the earth from the sin curse, and Jesus will rule and reign. And after a thousand years of Jesus ruling and reigning, and those who received Christ uh, uh, ruling and reigning with Him, and the Jews uh, ruling and reigning with, with Him, all of a sudden we find Revelation 20, God is going to release the devil out of hell for one last go. Look at verse 11, um, uh, rather, look at Revelation 20, verse number 7. The Bible says, And when the thousand years are expired, Satan shall be loosed out of his prison and shall go out to deceive the nations which are in the four quarters of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them together to battle, and the number of whom is as the sand of the sea. And they went up on the breadth of the earth and compassed the camp of the saints about in the beloved city, and fire came down from God out of heaven and devoured them. And the devil that deceived them was cast into the lake of fire and brimstone where the beast and the false prophets are and shall be tormented, this makes me happy, day and night forever and ever. After the thousand years, God's going to let Satan out of, uh, out of his prison in hell. Satan's going to come to earth. He's going to gather all of those people that live on planet earth that don't love Jesus and don't believe in him and don't want him to be their king. All those living in rebellion in their heart. He's going to gather them together. He's going to form them into a massive army. He's going to march them toward Jerusalem. They're going to come up to go against war against King Jesus. And all of a sudden it's going to end. God in heaven is going to drop a ball of fire out of heaven and boom. That army is going to be gone. And Satan's going to be taken and wrapped up, and he's going to be thrown in hell where he will be forever and ever and ever, and will never have to deal with that loser again. Amen? Um, is it wrong for me to want Satan to be tormented? I don't think it is. Satan has caused me a whole lot of deal and hurt and pain. Has he not caused you a whole lot of uh, uh, hurt and pain? I don't know about you, I don't want to face the tribulation. After that thousand years where Satan gathers the, the, the rebellious, turns them into an army and has them destroyed, we are, we are ushered right into a judgment. So what will those who reject Christ have to endure? They're going to have to endure terror during the tribulation. Number two, they're going to have to endure justice during the final judgment. Justice during the final judgment. Let me ask you a question. This is to my atheist friends. 
If I were to say to you that I don't believe the nation of Canada exists, does the nation of Canada still exist? Okay. You can claim God doesn't exist. That doesn't change the fact that God exists. Okay. Why are people atheistic? I just want to address this real quick. Why are people atheistic? I think, by and large, uh, today, in today's time, people are atheistic because they're taught that from the cradle. They're they're taught a godless society. I've talked to many atheists, many, many, many atheists, and somewhere in the conversation I asked them this question. When did you become an atheist? Now, I have never had anyone who couldn't answer the question. Everyone is able to tell me when they became, everyone who's an atheist is able to tell me when they became an atheist. Every time. Every time. Do you know why that is? Because no one is born not believing in God. We're all born believing in God and we have to make a choice to no longer believe in Him. Why do people turn to atheism? Well, I think there's a couple of reasons. One of the reasons, and again, this is not a complete list, but one of the reasons why people turn to atheism is because they are living such a sinful lifestyle that the thought of giving an account for the way they've lived is so horrifying that they just dismiss that God exists. This makes them now the king and ruler of their own life. They get to define morality instead of having a book called the Bible do it for them. Why else do people turn to atheism? And I hurt for this crowd. Some people have been so hurt or traumatized by an event in their life, they question how... A loving God could let that happen, and so they rationalize God away because God, a loving God would not let that happen. I heard for people who were in that spot. I in no way am judging this morning in that way. I'm not, I'm not meaning to cast uh, some sort of punishment or a judgmental attitude, especially for those who've been hurt. Uh, if you've been in that spot, I would love to sit and have a conversation with you and help you uh, unwind that and make sense of it. But all the same, God is real. And one day... God is going to have a judgment hall where the lost who've died without Christ are brought one at a time into His presence. Look at Revelation 20 and look at verse number 11. This place is a, just as real of a place as the auditorium we're sitting in right now. Look at verse 11. And I saw a great white throne. And him that sat on it, from whose face the earth and the heaven fled away. And there was no, and there was found no place for them. Look at 12. And I saw the dead. These are those who died without Christ. I saw the dead, small and great, stand before God. And the books were opened. And another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged out of those things which were written in the books according to their works. Now that's interesting. Look back at verse 12. Notice it says, the books were opened. What books are going to be opened at this great white throne judgment? Well, some may say, well, pastor, the book of life will be opening. Yes, the book of life is opened, but that is mentioned distinct, separate, from these mysterious books. So, again, I want you to picture this. There's this this throne room in heaven with a great white throne and God is sitting on His great white throne. 
And one at a time, those who rejected Christ are brought and they have their day in courts against God. Do you know that if you have not accepted Christ and you die without Christ, you will stand at that judgment. You, it will be you and God, mano y mano, one-on-one, no one else there. Your parents won't be there. Your husband and wife won't be there. Your boyfriend and girlfriend won't be there. Your priest won't be there. Your pastor won't be there. You and God all by yourself. And God is going to judge you. What books are going to be opened? Well, I, I have a pretty good idea what books are going to be opened. There will be a book there that will be opened called the Holy Bible. The Holy Bible. Take your Bibles with me over to the book of John, chapter number 12. John chapter 12 and verse 48. You see, God gave us a Bible for a few reasons, well, for many reasons. One of them is to tell us about how to get to heaven when we die, through Christ. But another reason why God gave us the Bible is to show us how sinful we are. People don't like the Bible because it's full of rules, and they think, ah, Christianity is just a bunch of rules. You know, God gave us these rules to help make our life better, not worse. He gave us these rules to maximize our joy, not tear down our happiness. When we do it God's way, we're joyous. When we do it our way, we might have fun for a little while, but that just leads to pain and suffering. And and He gave us this, this book to tell us the rules. Part of what the Bible does is it shows us how we fall short. Look at John chapter 12 and look at verse 48. Jesus says, He that rejecteth me, rejecteth who? Rejecteth Jesus. He that rejecteth me and receiveth not my words hath one that judgeth him. This is speaking of God at the great white throne judgment. The word that I have spoken, look here, look here. The same shall judge him in the last day. The Bible is going to be open. You say, I'm a good person. You're going to tell me you've never told a lie? I'm a good person. You're going to tell me you've never taken something that doesn't belong to you? I'm a good person. You're going to tell me you've never coveted something someone else had uh, that, you, that didn't belong to you? I'm a good person. You're going to tell me you've never taken the name of the Lord thy God in vain? I'm a good person. You're going to tell me that you haven't worshipped something and put a, a, a more a adoration and passion on that something or person than God? That's idolatry. One day, the Bible's going to be open, and it's going to be the standard by which you must meet uh, to escape God's wrath and escape God's punishment. And that book will declare you a sinner. But that's not the only book that will be open. You see, there will be books brought in, I believe, by the wagon full that have recorded the sin of your life. We'll call it evidence against you. You see, to get into God's heaven without Christ, you need to be perfect. Anybody here bold enough to claim that they've never sinned once in their life? The Bible says all have sinned. All have sinned. And here comes the evidence. In fact, listen, I'm just going to tell you the truth. If they are recording my sin in books, uh, in heaven there would be an entire library of sin. All right, angels, gather up the books of sin and walk them in. Look, you find the most moral person walking planet Earth, I guarantee you they've got book after book after book of sins they've committed in their life. Well, I'm better than, you know, some jailbird. The jailbird ain't the standard, my friend. A holy God's the standard. And they're, going to bring those, they're going to bring those books in. And the evidence is going to be laid out against you for your sin. 
Over and over again, the Bible talks about the need of having our sins blotted out. You know what it means to blot something out? I remember in school, I would write the wrong answer in the blank on a test. All right? I'm using a pen, wrote the wrong answer in the blank. And I'd get down to the end of the test and I'd think, you know what, I think I got that one wrong. And I'd take my pen and I would scribble over the word until it was no longer legible. Right? I'm blotting out what I wrote so it can't be read. And then I would write in the right answer. And my teacher would say, just draw one line through it. You don't need to blot it out. Okay? But I enjoyed blotting it out because it was fun. Okay? And, um, uh, but uh, you know what it means to blot out... It means that in heaven, those books of your sins, there is an angel when you believe in Christ who blots out the record of your sins so they're no longer legible. In fact, the psalmist tells us that God takes these books of our sins and when we believe in Christ, He buries them in the deepest sea and they're remembered no more. But if you've not believed in Christ, who died for your sins then those books will be brought out. You see, you have the Bible that sets the standard, and then you have the evidence of the laws that you've broken. Somebody says, I'm going to heaven because I'm a good person, and I've done good works. My friend, one day you will be judged by your works, and it's not going to be so great. Listen to Acts 3.19. Repent ye therefore and be converted, that your sins may be blotted out, when the times of refreshing shall come from the presence of the Lord. If I were to walk up to you today and say to you, uh, why should God let you into His heaven? Why should God let you into His heaven? If your answer is, because I was a good person, then my friend, one day you're going to be judged by the supposedly good works of your life. You're going to be judged by your works. And you're going to be found wanting. Wanting. What is God going to do to those who stand before Him at the judgment seat and have died in their sin. He's going to have them declared guilty. He's going to declare their sentencing in eternity in hell. He's going to have the angels pick each person up, drag them over to the portal of eternity, and throw them into hell. You see, the time for mercy is not at the great white throne judgment. The time for mercy is now. Now is the time to believe in Jesus. Now is the time to accept His salvation. Now is the time to humble your heart. Now is the time to release your pride. Now is the time to say, Lord, I don't want to endure the terror of the tribulation. I don't want to have to face Your justice at the judgment. Lord, I want to believe. I want my sins blotted out. I want them buried in the deepest sea. I want them remembered no more. I don't want to be viewed by my sin. I want to be viewed by the righteousness of Jesus who died for me. What will, what will those who reject Christ have to endure? What is the reality for the Christless? Terror during the tribulation. Justice during the final judgment. Number three, horror during an eternity in hellfire. Horror during an eternity in hellfire. Look at Revelation chapter 20. And again, I'm not trying to scare anyone, but I want you to know what's coming. I want you to know that Jesus talked far more about hell and heaven. I want you to know that hell is a real place filled with torment and pain and it lasts for all of eternity. I want you to know that Satan is not in charge of hell. God is in charge of hell. Look at Revelation 20, look at verse 13. And the sea gave up the dead which were in it, and death and hell 
delivered up the dead which were in them. So whether you're in hell, the grave, or in the ocean, all of those are going to stand before God and give an account. You say, what about my loved one who I believe died and went to hell? They'll have a moment out of hell where they'll be taken into the throne room of God and they'll be given their chance in court and they'll be declared guilty then they'll be thrown right back into hell. Look at verse 14. And death and hell were cast into the lake of fire. This is the second death. Look at the standard. And whosoever was not found written in the book of life was cast into the lake of fire. Please understand that if you reject Christ, you are then choosing to be punished in your sin. If you receive Christ, you're choosing to be pardoned from your sin and granted access to heaven. And if you die in your sin, you will be cast in hell and punished under the hatred of God for all of eternity. Look at Revelation 21, look at verse 8. The Bible says, but the fearful, by the way, uh, we can do these things today and know that our sins are forgiven if you're saved. And know that these won't define us in eternity. But if you die without Christ, these things will define you and will uh, sentence you to hell. The fearful and unbelieving and the abominable and murderers and whoremongers and sorcerers and idolaters. And if those don't get you, this next one will. And all liars shall have their part in the lake which burneth with fire and brimstone, which is the second death. Is there any question about the how real the lake of fire is. If there is a question, consider the words of Jesus at the end of Matthew 25. He said, Then shall He say also unto them on the left hand, Depart from Me, ye cursed, into everlasting fire, prepared for the devil and his angels. Those who die in their sins will be punished. The full hatred that God has for sin will be realized in this place of great punishment. I'm going to ask that everyone hold tight. No one leave the room unless it's an emergency. I need everyone's attention with no distraction. I'm going to give for you a description of hell right here. The Bible says hell will be a place of utter darkness. Hell will be a place of utter darkness. John 3.19 says, And this is the condemnation that light is coming to the world. And men love darkness rather than light because their deeds are evil. Very few people will steal something in broad daylight, but they will steal something under the cover of dark. Very few people commit murder under daylight. They will do it in the shadows or in the dark. And because sin thrives in the shadows and sin thrives in darkness, hell will be defined by darkness. Matthew chapter 8, verse 12 says, But the children of the kingdom shall be cast out into outer darkness. There shall be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Darkness that's so dark you can't see your own hand in front of your face. Hell will be a place of permanent darkness. There will not be a light bulb. There will not be uh, any semblance of light. You will be living in utter darkness for all of eternity because God is light. Heaven will be filled with light. There will be no shadows in light. Hell will be filled with darkness because the wrath of God will reign, reign and rule there. Those who die in their sin and love darkness, love the shadows of darkness. Those of you teenagers who are committing sin behind your back, a parent's back, you're doing it in darkness. Those of you who are uh, fooling around on your spouse behind their back and the shadow behind their back, uh, uh, listen, uh, that's what hell will be. It will be a shadow. It will be darkness. Those of you who sin and think no one sees you, you look to the right, you look to the left, you look in front, you look behind, and you think, I can get away with sin, my friend. God sees you, and you might be hiding in darkness. And if you die in your sin, you're going to be in utter darkness for all of eternity. Hell is a place of utter darkness, but even worse than that, hell will be a place of unimaginable fire. Turn over to Luke chapter 16 with me. Luke chapter 16, we find the story of a 
man, rich man named, uh, uh, rather a rich man with no name, and a poor man who was a pauper, a beggar, who ate food under the rich man's table as some sort of laughable pet named Lazarus. And Lazarus was a believer in Christ. The rich man was a believer in his own wealth and his own uh, uh, intuition and abilities. And the rich man dies and the angels take him in Abraham's bosom. This is prior to the resurrection of Christ. And so uh, the, the, the saints went to Abraham's bosom or paradise prior to heaven being open uh, to those who believed. And uh, the rich man, he went into hell. The Bible gives us a little bit of a glimpse of what hell looks like. Someone says, this is a parable, and I would say you're, you're sadly mistaken if you believe Luke 16 is a parable. A name is given. Names don't exist in parables. God gave us a name because Lazarus was a real person, and hell is a real place. Look at Luke 16, 23. The Bible says, and in hell, he lifted up his eyes. Look here. Being in torments, plural. Being in torments. And see Abraham afar off and Lazarus in his bosom. Hell is a place of unquenchable fire, unimaginable fire, unimaginable fire. And I'm here to tell you that uh, fire is nothing to play with. About a week ago, uh, about midnight on a Saturday morning, I was awakened by some stranger standing in my yard on the phone. And um, I live right next door to the church. This is not a neighborhood where people just wander into your yard, okay? Especially not at midnight. And so Angela said, I think someone's out in the yard. And I woke up, and I went over, and I opened up the window, and sure enough, there's a guy standing in my yard with his flashlight and his cell phone on. He's talking on the phone. And I said, what is some nut job doing in my yard at midnight? And Angela said, I'm going to call the police. And I said, well, hold on, let me find out what's going on. And I walk around the corner, and there's a gleam, an orange gleam on my, uh, on my uh, window there in the lobby of our, or the foyer of our house. And so I... I put my shoes on and I threw some, some, some outside clothes on and I went outside and I looked in my front yard and there was a car that had hit the light pole in my front yard and had burst into flames and was on fire. The entire thing was engulfed in flames. Matthew woke up and looked out the window and he said, am, am I dreaming or is this really happening? I have the video on my phone. If you want to see it after church, I'll show it to you. Thankfully, all three of the guys in the car got out before it burst into flames. Now, I, I tell you the story because I want you to understand what hell is. The darkest flame that can be created in a laboratory is a black flame. Rather, the hottest flame that can be created in a laboratory is a black flame. The darker the color of the flame, the hotter it is. The Bible says that hell is both a, pla- hell is both a place of fire and darkness. In fact, black flames can only be created in a laboratory in a perfect condition. I want you to imagine if you were stuck in a car that was on fire and you died like that. Now imagine that for all of eternity. That's what God thinks about your sin. Hell is a place of unimaginable fire. Next. Hell is a place of unquenchable thirst. Look at Luke 16, look at verse 24. And he, the rich man, cried and said, Father Abraham, have mercy on me. And send Lazarus that he may dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue, for I am tormented in this flame. He said, just one drop of water on my tongue would do so much for me. I don't want a glass of water. I don't want a, a, a barrel of water. I just want one drop of water on the tip of my tongue because I am thirsty and I want uh, this thirst quenched. Just one drop of water. 
And Abraham tells him, look, you had your wealth, you had your good life, uh, you had your success, and you ignored God, and you ignored Christ, and now you've died without Christ, and you're going to live an eternity suffering under the wrath of the Lamb. Unquenchable thirst, unimaginable fire, utter darkness. Hell will be a place of uninterrupted falling. Uninterrupted falling. Revelation chapter 20 verse 1 says, And I saw an angel come down from heaven, having the key of the bottomless pit, and a great chain in his hand. Hell is described as a bottomless pit. Listen, uh, in my youth, I loved roller coasters. Man, I loved roller coasters. And I still tell my kids that I like them. I, I, I like them now. I don't love them. I like them now. But uh, uh, I, can, I can tolerate them, okay? But, um, and, and to show them how much better I am than them, I get on them because they won't, okay? But uh, my least favorite roller coaster ride of sorts was when you get in that chair and they take you straight up the tower. You know what I'm talking about? And you can see like, like 15 states from the top. You know what I'm talking about? And then all of a sudden, whoom! How many know what I'm talking about? How many of you have ever ridden one of those? How many will never ride one of those again? Okay. Me either. All right. I hate those rides. I can do the roller coaster, the free fall, no thank you. Okay. Um, we drive down uh, backcountry roads. And you got, you got these hills. And if you hit them fast enough, you can get airborne, right? And uh, my wife will go, oh, stop, my stomach. Right? And my wife's never ridden a roller coaster in her life, okay? Um, uh, so uh, not that doesn't make me better than her. It just, you know, I just haven't. She hasn't. But imagine that, that falling sensation from that ride forever. Forever. And ever. I'm not talking about for a year or a thousand years, or a million years, or a billion or trillion years, forever and ever and ever, you're falling and falling and falling and falling. You have pushed away from Christ, and now you have fallen because you did not cling to Him. You say, Pastor, you are being sensational. You are exaggerating. Oh, my friend, I'm not even beginning to come close to describe the horrors of hell. Utter darkness, unimaginable fire, unquenchable thirst, uninterrupting falling, uninterrupted falling. Let me give you one more. Hell will be a place of unending torment by worms. Turn over to Mark chapter 9, verse 43. And I'm not trying to gross anyone out. I just want you to understand, if you reject Christ and die in your sin what you have in store for yourself. Look at Mark chapter 9 and verse 43. And if thy hand offend thee, cut it off. It is better for thee to enter into life maim than having two hands to go into hell, into the fire that never shall be quenched, where the worm dieth not and the fire is not quenched. You see that? Where the worm dieth not. The worm dieth not. And if thy foot offend thee, cut it off. It is better for thee to go... Into, uh, it is better for thee to enter into life, halt, halt into life than having two feet to be cast into hell, into the fire that never shall be quenched, where, the, where their worm dieth not, and the fire is not quenched. And if that eye offend thee, pluck it out. It is better for thee to enter into the kingdom of God without, with one eye than having two eyes to be cast into hell fire, where their worm dieth not, and the fire is not quenched. Imagine having worms that crawl all over you, in and out of your eye sockets and your ear holes. 
You see, hell is not a place where you go and you're immediately incinerated and that's it. God gives you a new body in hell the way he gives those who go to heaven a new body. This body is meant to endure suffering for all of eternity. Now I want to finish with a plea to both the saved and the lost. Let me begin with the lost. Please listen closely. Please, I ask everyone to listen closely. If you're here today and you're saved, do not be a distraction around you to someone who is lost and needs to hear what I'm about to say. God hates your sin, but He deeply loves you. When He lost your soul to sinful living, He went as far as bankrupting heaven by sending His only begotten Son into the world in order to pay the eternal debt of hell that you owed for your sin. How bad did Jesus suffer on the cross? He went through hell on the cross so He could provide for you an avenue to heaven. He suffered in a way that we can never even begin to understand. God put His precious Son through that in order to satisfy His justice and wrath of sin and extend to you a free ticket to heaven called mercy and grace. To swat away the hand of God, to swat away the gift of God, to swat away the sacrifice of Jesus is of great offense after He paid so high a price. It is both arrogant and foolish to make such a poor choice. This is the justification as to why a loving God can send people to hell. The reality is God does not send you to hell. Rather, you send yourself there by rejecting God's simple plan of salvation. If you believe that Jesus died in your place, all He requires of you is a childlike faith in Him from your heart for salvation. Look at Romans chapter 10, verse 13. I'm going to put it up on the screen. Here it is. For whosoever... Hey, you know what that means? That means you. For whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Now, hold on. There's two shalls in that verse. One shall involves you, and the other shall involves God. That first shall is what you do. You must call on the name of the Lord. You must believe with your heart. That's your portion. You take the faith in your heart and you extend your hand and say, Lord Jesus, I believe in you. Save my soul. The second shall belongs to the Lord. Notice there it says, shall be saved. You don't save yourself. He saves you through your faith. I want you to imagine with me that your foot is caught in some train tracks. And there's a train bearing down on you and you cannot get loose. And off to the side, there's a man standing there who is well-bodied and abled. And you cry out to him for help. He's got his back to you. He's not paying any attention. He doesn't know. And you call out his name and he turns around and he runs over and he loosens your foot and you get away from the train just in the nick of time. 
My friend, Jesus wants to loosen your foot from the terror of the tribulation, the justice from the final judgment, and a horror from hellfire. He wants to loosen your foot and save your soul and take you to heaven. But He's waiting on you to humble your heart and ask Him to do that. Are you going to be so foolish as to swat away the hand of God today? Or are you going to humble your heart and receive Him? In just a moment, I'm going to give you a chance to tell the Lord that you believe in Him and you want Him to save your soul. Can I speak to the Christians here for just a minute? Are you looking up here at me? Can I have your undivided attention just for a moment? This is why we witness to a lost and dying world. Because the tribulation is right around the corner. And the final judgment follows that. And hell for all of eternity awaits those who die in their sin. And for your friends and loved ones and neighbors to never even hear the name of Jesus because you were too afraid or too proud or too lazy to tell them about Jesus. Oh, you're going to live with regret for a long, long, long time. Until God wipes those tears away at the end of the millennial reign, you're going to wish you had lived your life differently. I don't care how much money you have in the bank. I don't care what kind of car you drive. I don't care where you retire one day. I don't care how nice the things you have. There's a world dying and going to hell. And they need Christians to be bold and stand up and proclaim the truth for the world to hear. If people end up in hell one day, it will in part be their fault and it will part be our fault because we were too lazy and too distracted to tell them about Jesus. And I don't stand up here today to reprimand you. I stand here today to try to grab you by the shirt collar and shake you real hard and say, Hey, we got a work to do. Jesus is coming. Let's get with it. Today what I wanted to do was pull back the curtain and show you what awaits the Christless The reality that waits. Oh, I don't want anyone I know to be Christless. I want them to accept Christ. If you haven't done that, please, right now, the Spirit of God is knocking on your heart door. He's telling you, listen to that man up there. He's right. He's right. Listen to that man up there. Open up your heart. Revelation 3. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If any man will hear my voice and open the door, I will sup with him and he with me. God wants to commune with your heart this morning. He wants to save your soul. Will you open your heart's door and let him in? Let's have our heads bowed and eyes closed. Every head bowed, every eye closed. No one looking around. How about it today? How about it right now? You ready to give your heart to Christ? He died for you. He suffered for your sin. There's no reason for you to suffer for your sin. He already did it. He wants your faith. That's all He wants. He wants it to come from your heart. Right there where you're sitting today, all you have to do is call on the name of the Lord. All you have to do is tell the Lord, I believe in you for salvation. If you'd like to do that right where you're sitting, if you've never ever called on the name of the Lord... Let me help you do your part so he can do his part. Christians, why don't you pray for those in the room that are lost right now? Why don't you pray for those in the room right now who aren't saved? That they would have the courage to get saved. If you're here today, will you just bend a knee or bow your head and ask God uh, for the hearts of those here who are lost that they believe. If you're here today and you've never put your faith in Jesus, let me help you call on his name right now. Under your breath, just pray this simple prayer. Pray it from your heart. Just say, Dear Lord Jesus.
I know that I'm a sinner. And I know I deserve to die and go to hell. Thank you for dying and taking hell in my place. Thank you for loving me in spite of my sin. Lord Jesus, my faith is in you alone. Give me the gift of eternal life. I believe you died and rose again for me. Save my soul. Write my name in the Lamb's book of life. In Jesus' name. Now with your heads bowed and eyes closed, if you prayed that prayer this morning and you meant it from your heart, I want to rejoice with you today. If you prayed that prayer and you meant it, will you just slip up your hand right where you are? I prayed that prayer and I meant it. I see one hand. Is there another? I prayed that prayer and I meant it this morning. Is there anyone else? I prayed that prayer. I gave my heart to Jesus today. Amen. The one, uh, I see another hand down here. Anybody else? I prayed that prayer and I meant it. I asked Jesus to save me. If you did not do that today, boy, I sure hope you'll do it very soon. The Spirit of God is... is is, is begging you. He wants to take the blood shed on Calvary. And He wants to wash away the record of your sins. He wants to blot out those sins. Don't deny Him access to do that. Boy, call on His name. If you have questions and want to talk to me, I'll be available. Pastor Andrew's standing right down here. If you want to ask him questions during this time of invitation, please come take him by the hand. He'll sit with you. If you're a lady, he'll get a lady to sit with you. And we'll answer your questions. We'll clear those roadblocks. So you can believe. How many of you here today would say, Pastor Desjardins, I am a Christian, but I see a greater need this morning to share the gospel with the world that's dying and going to hell. I see the need. Pastor Desjardins, here's my hand. Pray for me that I'll be a better witness to those around me. If that's your hand, would you hold them up? Pastor, pray for me. I know that Jesus is coming back, and I know it's going to be good for me and hard on others. Pray, pray for me. I'll have that, 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 uh, that courage. May God give us the courage and the boldness. May God help us to prioritize it. Let's stand to our feet with our heads bowed and eyes closed. Lord Jesus, would you work during this time of invitation. May many come to the altar this morning and commit to be more devoted to their witness. May those who are lost still come to the altar and uh, uh, get uh, what they need to be able to put their faith in you. Lord, give us an old-fashioned altar call this morning. Lord, help us to leave this place charged up uh, to go tell the world about Jesus. In your name we pray.